I'm Greg Johnson. Welcome to CounterCurrents Radio. My guest today is Hunter Wallace of Occidental Descent, and he's going to be telling us a bit about some ideas that I thought were really interesting. Ideas about coordinating the alt-right media. So, Hunter, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me, Greg. So you have been going great guns recently at Occidental Descent. I've been checking in every day. You've got a number of new writers there. You're covering a lot of things going on in, in the United States and around the globe. So why don't we begin with Occidental Descent? Uh, tell us a bit about what you've been up to recently, and then we can sort of broaden this out into more general points. Okay. Um, you know, I've always had the blog since the latest incarnation, since 2009. It's changed focus several times, but um, really, really, you know, things were, everything got swept up by the 2016 election, presidential election. And I started doing um, more punditry and writing about current events, and that seemed very popular. People were looking for, you know, an analysis of mainstream politics from an alt-right point of view, a southern nationalist, white nationalist point of view, and that took off, and my audience uh, started growing, and, you know, we kind of got sucked into the um, the whole Twitter world, as I would call it. I uh, really wasn't active on Twitter until 2015, and when the whole conservative uh, meme blew up, and uh, it, it started to occur to me, like, how many, the sheer amount of people that were using uh, the social networking service. And so there was... I look, I look back on it, and for years there, I mean, I really didn't even take advantage of social media, which was kind of stupid on my part. Uh, <laughs> I see that's a mistake. And what we're going to talk about today is building up platforms in order to spread our message, because we're putting out all this great content, but it isn't really we're not we're not we're not uh, getting it out there, it's delivering it. Uh, as well as we could have. So what do you think about that? Yeah, I think that that is definitely true. It would be really nice if there were more coordination. You, when you look at the mainstream media, you see that some some guy in some room somewhere decides, okay, this is fake news. And then everywhere in the mainstream media, it's all fake news, fake news. They're all chattering yeah. away on, on cue. And it would be really nice to have that level of coordination when we can. And obviously, they're doing something to bring this about because I pay attention, right, to what's going on in our sphere, like you do and others, but I I don't get the memo sometimes, right? It's like, oh, where did this new meme come from? Or what, what, what are people reacting to now? I, I feel like there are lots and lots of loops that, a lot of us are out of, and these people are yeah. good at looping one another in. So there's a, they can create a buzz and they can create a false consciousness just at the, you know, the snap of somebody's fingers. That's, that's what, you know, we can call the magic of driving the narrative. Someone starts the narrative, and as you know, um, New York Times will have it, the Washington Post <coughs> will have it, Huffington Post, Salon, Slate. All the leftist sites, you know, they come out there and they hit the talking points of the narrative. And that's how they create these stories and uh, drive news cycles and torpedo things they don't want to talk about. Whereas, you know, for us, for the longest time, it was you had all these different sites and 
they were all doing their own thing. And sometimes I would be writing about the history of, I don't know, the 17th century Caribbean and other people would be talking about national socialist Germany and just not in the present like these people are. And they were, and it wasn't as coordinated, but you know, I think is the more time that our people have, since they've migrated to Twitter and they sit there and they observe how all these news cycles and narratives get started on Twitter, they've kind of learned how, learned uh, how to do that. And I mean, we saw in the, in the 2016 election, the success the alt-right had getting on social media and working together, retweeting and driving narratives and stuff. And that's kind of new. Um, you know, I've, I've had to really like learn to get the hang of that myself. And, um, Right now, the big narrative is uh, antifas, and that's what everybody's focused on. And we're just demonizing the crap out of them and uh, drawing attention to it. And it's had some uh, good effects. Yeah, I would agree. One thing that was very much true of the older movement is that it was largely reactive. We were largely reacting to the news that was being made by the establishment. And in the past couple of years, there have been instances where people from our sphere have actually gotten the establishment to react to us. We have started setting the terms, the parameters of the news cycle, and that was tremendously exciting. How do we do more of that? Well, let's, let's return to the example I think we were talking about. This was uh, a few months ago when uh, the whole Sweden narrative um, was going on. Everybody was talking about the... Um, insanity in Sweden and you know that bubbled up on countless different sites there's a guy named Peter Sweden on Twitter who uh, is always you know exposing the crime there uh, Stefan Molyneux was doing YouTube videos about it uh, Box Day was writing about it um, Mike Sarnovich started writing about it Infowars was doing special uh, specials on it and then like it migrated from there um from the whole alt-right, alt-light spear onto uh, Tucker Carlson tonight. And, you know, from there, it migrated all the way up into a line in Trump's speech uh, when he was, I believe he was in Florida. And, you know, he you know, he was like, people aren't going to believe what's going on in Sweden. And then, you know, Tim Poole, after that, went over to Sweden and did a huge documentary um, series about, like, the crime there and an investigation, and that was crowdfunded and all these conservatives, it made so much noise on um, Twitter and Facebook and it generated so much interest uh, that the mainstream conservative sites started picking it up too, like Front Page Magazine, Daily Caller. And then, of course, you know, after that kind of tampered down some, they had the, the huge terrorist attack in Sweden when the uh, little girl got ran over and murdered. And all these leftists had said that, you know, there's nothing going on in Sweden. Uh, it's perfectly safe here. I believe the government of Sweden took out an ad in the New York Times <laughs> saying that Sweden was perfectly safe. And then they actually got hit by a terrorist attack. And um, it was one of those truck attacks where they, you know, they run over people. And that's that's an example of how, you know, we can drop, we can work together to drive narratives into the news cycle and affect uh, public consciousness. And, you know, since we, since we were talking about this ourselves a few months ago, there's been a reaction against that, and we can get into that at some point. What do you think is the best tool 
for people in our sphere to coordinate on stories and, and zero in on stories, sort of create a, a, a pack, uh, a lynch mob kind of atmosphere so we're constantly pushing it out to all of our different platforms. Is it Twitter or is there anything else that serves that function? Um, tw- Twitter is by far uh, the best service for that in my view. Although um, the YouTube videos are kind of like the heavy artillery. <laughs> they, they um, I mean, you can tweet out the YouTube videos and people sit there and watch it and it right. just absorbs. I know, I know, I know watching all these YouTube videos, there's so much content, uh, podcasts and everything out there that I don't really even have time to watch as much of the traditional news as I did before. But, um, Twitter is the best to, you know, get this kind of pack, uh, going and, I've been like extremely active in that. I'm surprised my Twitter account hasn't been banned. Um, I've been gagged a few times, but so far no ban. Yeah, well that's that's good. Yeah, I keep it kind of mild on there. I don't, you know, get on there and scream racial slurs. I don't troll people. I just use it for politics. But yeah, I think that's valuable. I think one thing that I I need to do is just start following more people on Twitter. I, I I have lots of followers. I have like 11,000 followers, and I think I'm following fewer than 50 people. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's that's one uh, neat trick I learned um, from Twitter early on. You know, people, it's, it's kind of like Facebook. Well, people will follow you, then they'll expect you to follow them back. Mm-hmm. If you don't follow them back, they'll unfollow you. And so I usually, I traditionally um, will follow people back, and then, you know, at the end of the month, I'll look and, you know, I'll weed out like the, you know, the social marketing accounts and the, the ad accounts and the, the fakes. And a lot of those people who, you know, you know, they follow me and they get a better understanding who I am and they unfollow me. It kind of, you know, edits itself. So I've got about, I've got, I think I got about like 12,500 followers now and it's <laughs> growing. And I'm also learning to use, um, I'm actually no good at it, but I'm going to get better at it. Uh, they've integrated Periscope into Twitter. So anywhere you go and, you know, you're on the scenes of <laughs> chaos like I was in Pikeville, Kentucky, you can just sit there and film it and hundreds of people can follow you. That's great. How many people are you following on Twitter? Uh, I think it's about, um, since I, since I started doing it, um, I think it's about 7,000. Wow. And I, I yeah, I, I actually enjoy that because, you know, um, I, I enjoy just seeing what ordinary people, you know, are thinking and what's on their mind. And most of the stuff I retweet is just those people. It's not like big figures in our movement. And uh, I've developed a lot of good relationships from doing that. I think that's very valuable. I think a lot of people just don't if they don't if, if you're a nobody, you know, you don't they don't follow you back. But, you know, as a habit, as a rule, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I like to hear what people say. I'm kind of a populist in that way. Yeah, I think that's wise. When we first set up our Twitter account, I think it was yeah. back in 2011 or something like that, it, it was set up so that everything I posted to the CounterCurrents Facebook page was automatically tweeted out. And I did not actually look at our Twitter account. <laughs> I didn't actually log into Twitter sure. until... Sure. About, I think it was 2015. And so I had thousands of followers, but I was following no one. And I, 
I was just using it as a as a as a tool of of getting information out there, and I wasn't using it as a tool of gathering information in. And I think that now is the time to start using that to gather more information because then I can coordinate better with other people. Yeah, and I'll tell you another thing I've learned from Twitter, um, something we didn't have before. Like you said, you know, I remember when I first uh, established mine. It was in in 2010, and I would get on there and I would tweet out exactly three things a day just out of habit. Mm-hmm. And then I, I quit doing it and lost interest <clears throat> in it. And it was all the way until um, the whole conservative thing broke out in 2015. And that started, you know, getting all the news, all the news. Then all these people migrated onto Twitter at that point. And then they became more familiar with it. And then it just became this fun thing of the last um, two years. But one thing I've noticed, not it's not just, uh, getting information out there and driving narratives and news cycles and memes and um, because these things spread virally. I look at my impressions every month and it was it would start out like two hundred and fifty thousand, then five hundred thousand, then a million, and then five million, and then like ten million. They're gonna have something like fifteen or twenty million impressions <laughs> this month. They're gonna have to ban me soon if this keeps going on. But um. One thing I've noticed, and I remember when we were doing all these little rallies for the League of the South, and um, we just had no way to get our message out. We, we, it was all dependent on whether the enemy media, the, the Lugan press, would show up and cover us. And it, even if they did, it would usually be after the fact. And like these Nazis came and held a small rally, and ha ha ha. But now, you know, now, now it's totally different. I look at it kind of like having an Air Force. Like um, anywhere I can go, I can just start tweeting out and responding and bannering to people. And there's people all in that area, um, virtually anywhere I go. And um, they can get things going. Like um, I'll, tell you, I'll, t- I'll tell you an example. Um, when, um, when we went to Pikeville, Kentucky for this event that was up there, uh, Mike Enoch was there. I talked to him. Um, you know, I started tweeting out about it. I was like, these violent antifas are coming to your town and they smash things and they want to destroy your property. I had like the, um, I believe it was the, the mayor of the coal run Kentucky, which is part of Pikeville, like was private messaging me and asking me questions. And they got the, uh, Kentucky state police involved and, um, you know, um, if I hadn't done that, and also I reached all kinds of locals in the area too, and they had personal connections to um, the government and the town, and they used that. And I mean, the antifas didn't cause any violence, and that's I mean, you can use Twitter as an organizing tool. Um, so that's what I'm using it more as. Yeah, that sounds really very useful. I've never used it in in that way. I've never. You know, said, okay, I'm going to be in Portland, Oregon on this day doing this stuff, right? But <laughs> yeah, I, if you I, want to come out, you know, come find us. Yeah, yeah, that, that actually sounds like a, a good use of things. And because people are so connected together, you know, they say, what, we're six degrees of separation from anybody else in the United States. But, of course, the trouble is finding those five people, you know, between you and the guy that you want contact uh, with. Well... You broadcast stuff out on Twitter, and 
things sometimes you'll start knowing those people that are between you and the target person and you can start filling in these connections so that's that's a tremendously useful tool yeah that's exactly uh, the case and um well, like I said, all this stuff is a lot of this stuff's coming together, and it's happening through Twitter. People see their tweets, and you know they link up, and that's how all these. Um, like I didn't even know like there was this huge standoff in Nashville. You had like hundreds of people out there, and they they heard about that the Antifa's were having a rally in Nashville. <laughs> they chased them uh, through the streets. And it, it was that was all spontaneously organizing. I, I heard through Twitter, and uh, that's a that's a new development. It used to be they would form these little gangs and they would attack people. And right. They could get away with it with impunity, and it's totally uh, in a lot of places flipping around now. That's mainly because of social media. By far, I mean that's if it wasn't for that, it wouldn't be happening. Yeah, the the basic legacy media model, the classic model, is there's a central source of news and entertainment and it's beamed out to a bunch of isolated people who are consuming this in the privacy of their own homes and what's so revolutionary about social media is it allows you to get around that by creating links between people so that they can pass information from one another without having to go through the centralized censorship of the of the old model media and uh, that is revolutionary, and it does allow viral propagation of memes that were otherwise totally censored. And one of the books that really helped me appreciate social media, even though it was written before social media was a thing, really, is Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point. Have you encountered that book? Uh, I think I've heard of it. I haven't read it, though. It, it's basically about how small differences uh, small changes can lead to big changes. It's, it's about viral phenomena, and it's about how buzzes get created, right? Uh, the kinds of people who are useful in creating basically viral propagation of memes. And, and you know, he was writing at the time really, again, before the social media really took off, and so he was describing things that were done that, that happened much more rarely and with greater difficulty than they do today. But the basic principles of, of say, viral propagation, where things go, can grow exponentially, uh, is very interesting. And he has a discussion of, of people who are connectors, for instance, and mavens and salesmen. Yeah. These are the people that he, uh, the, the three basic types that he talks about and how useful they are uh, in, in making some kind of phenomenon go viral. It's sort of a potboiler, popularizer-type book, but it synthesizes a lot of information from social psychology and business history, things like that, and just the news, right, to help you understand how things can go viral. And it really is very useful just as a lens for viewing how we do things, and it's really taught me for instance, to appreciate people who are natural connectors. And connectors, in his uh, terms, are people who have a lot of connections with people, often very superficial and shallow connections with people in a lot of different areas of life. And, of course, if you are connected with a lot of people, it can't be really deep, right? <laughs> Just yeah. because of 
you know, processing time. There's not enough hours in the day to get to know all these people. But people who are personable and outgoing and have the brain processing power to maintain these connections. And, you know, there is this Dunbar number. You can't really maintain relationships with more than 150 people. But there are people that I know who basically they can keep tabs on 250 people or something like that. People like that, if they if they can do that and if they're naturally outgoing, these people are golden. They're so useful. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I there are a few connectors that I know now that I, I treasure. You know, it's like, okay, this group, they're traveling around the United States. They need to get their message out. Who do I know that might know Paul Joseph Watson or help them get on InfoWars or help them do this? And there's, like, one guy that I know who's, like, one or two steps away from all this stuff. And so <laughs> taking an inventory of your connectivity and then making a habit of that, of, of using that, is, is tremendously helpful. And, of course, when you don't know where, the, where those connections are, you put a piece of information out, like on Facebook or Twitter or whatever, and sometimes the connections will pop up. Yeah, people give you uh, directions, basically, how to find those people. Yeah. And I can, you know, since the last chimed in here, I mean, I don't know if you hear it on your end, but my phone just keeps beeping off the hook. All these people on Twitter are just... Ba -bing, ba -bing, ba -bing, bing. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I don't, I don't, I don't know. I got a new phone. I don't know how to. There it goes again. No, <laughs> I'm not hearing it, so don't worry about okay, it. Okay, it's, it's it's going crazy. It's beep 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 beep, and it just vibrates, and um, that's just people uh, sounding off and responding to other people on, mm -hmm. <laughs> on whatever tweet I sent out. And it's constant, like 24/7 now, and um. And it just goes to show you the power you have in these little smartphones. And we have not taken full advantage of it. Um, and I think the um, powers that be are getting really scared that, you know, now we're starting to wise up and how, see how things go. Right. How, you know, narratives, how they use technology to drive narratives. And how the narratives, you know, drive and, you know, frame how people think about the world, about politics, morality. And, you know, they're used to having that monopoly on the ability to drive the narrative. Right. And you know, now they're freaking out that um, they're not really needed anymore. And they're trying to sh desperately to shut us down. In the last um, month or two, I've had the Sleeping Giants campaign or whatever, um, which is trying to censor all these sites that have ads, got my Discuss account shut down. Uh, they're trying to go after Breitbart, too. That's their main target. But mm -hmm. um, they're just trying to squelch uh, speech. And all these stupid ads, I mean, I used an ad blocker, so I never even saw them in the first place. I didn't even know they were there. Right. And uh, and uh, it was one, it was making a trivial amount of money, but they were just so desperate. Um, anything they can do to, you know, shut down our discourse. Well, yeah. So that was, that was number one. And then um, I'm trying to think here. What was number two? Um, I think I got uh, temporarily gagged on Twitter um, for using, I can't remember. Oh, it wasn't even a slur. It was something ridiculous. They're having, um, they've changed their policies to, you know, where they can get rid of you more easily. They've banned countless people. Uh, so I, got, I just got briefly gagged on there. And then the other day, they shut down my PayPal account uh, for no reason whatsoever. Um so they're trying to, you know, shut down any source of financing they can get and 
See, I don't have one of these big popular YouTube accounts, but I know that Paul Joseph Watson said something. He had like a million subscribers, and um, he was making something like $23 a day on it now because um, YouTube flipped out and changed its policy uh, after the whole PewDiePie um, story, and PewDiePie got into it with the Wall Street Journal and... They're trying as hard as they can to demonetize our speech on YouTube, for we can't make nobody can make money off of it anymore. And they've also, um, you know, I mean, they're just coming at you with these social justice gags. They're doing it on PayPal, on Discuss, on on Facebook is terrible. I don't ever really use it because of that. Um, they're doing everything they can to, you know, silence us and to get us off these platforms because, as they saw in the Trump campaign, it was so effective. Right. Um, so many more people in, involved now because of that. Um, that little. The best long-term thing we can push for is nationalizing these platforms like Twitter, Facebook, mm-hmm. basically Google, uh, also, frankly, Amazon.com, because those are the public sphere now. The, that That is freedom of speech. And if you are being blocked yeah. in these areas, you do not have de facto freedom of speech. Now, there are ways of doing this. You can outright nationalize them or you can just regulate them heavily like public utilities, which is what they really are. A natural monopoly, basically. Yeah. In the short run, though, I think it would be great just to have legislation basically banning any companies from having terms of service or rules for employment, basically, that are based on PC ideology. You should not have to be a diversity cult worshiper to have a job at a university. For instance, in the in the state of Oregon, university faculty are basically required to believe in the diversity cult. It's just written into the, the way the system is done. And, of course, in practically every, uh, every other university, if you don't toe that line, they're going to get rid of you somehow, unless you're a tenured full professor. So it would be great to simply have legislation saying all these terms of service are junk. You have to take all customers. It should be like, you know, insurance companies, right? <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. uh, you may have a pre-existing condition, but you've got, uh, this company has to take your um, your policy or give you a policy. It should be the same with Twitter. Oh my gosh, this person has uh, uh, ideological leprosy, right? But we can't ban them. We've got to take them. And I think that yeah. that kind of legislation would be the greatest blow for freedom of speech that could possibly be struck. And I would love to see the Trump administration entertain policies like that. That would be excellent. Another thing that we really need to do, though, and somebody out there listening, if you know PewDiePie, I want to talk to the guy because this is really, really important. I've been thinking about the best way for right-wingers to invest in media because we don't have billionaires, right, who are ideologically driven who are investing in media. I just reviewed this movie, The Promise, uh, which is a, a movie that's set during the Armenian Genocide in 1915. And the movie was bankrolled to the tune of $100 million by Kirk Kerkorian, who was an Armenian-American billionaire who gave more than a billion dollars away during his lifetime, most of it to help the Republic of Armenia or his own ethnic group. 
And the last thing he really did was, uh, before he died at the age of 98, was bankroll this film. And we just don't have visionary billionaires who want to do that kind of stuff for whites. And if we did have somebody, though, who had some millions of dollars and wanted to invest in something, I think probably the, the most well the most leveraged investment that we could make ideologically is a new YouTube that is censorship free because we don't need to buy studios and things like that and produce the content. We just need to give a platform and a way of monetization. And you're going to have all these right thinking, free thinking people showing up to produce the content on a shoestring with, within their own apartments and houses on their own computers and that is really where most of the Generation Z people and a lot of millennials are now interfacing with the media. It's through YouTube. That would be the best thing. And when you look at someone like PewDiePie, who is making more than a million dollars a month and has close to 55 million followers, this guy could capitalize a new censorship-free YouTube. And with his 55 million followers, he could immediately populate it with enough people that it would have the critical mass to take off. And one of the problems with any of these fork projects, like, oh, we're going to set up a, an un-PC Reddit or an un-PC Twitter, is that it just doesn't populate with enough people to take off. But if you have somebody like him who can bring 55 million people that is enough to get something going. And all these other people like Paul Joseph Watson and Millennial Woes and so forth, they would follow. And it would be a renaissance. I mean, <laughs> I was talking to Millennial Woes about this. And it's like, okay, how many countries are smaller than PewDiePie's list of YouTube subscribers? <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's, he, he has more here. YouTube subscribers then most of the countries in the United Nations have populations, you know, if you take them individually, right? Yeah, got, that's you, you amazing know, how big that guy is. Yeah, he's got 10 times more subscribers than Hungary has citizens, okay? This, this yeah, guy uh, could be the, not just the father, this guy could be the father of some massive new media thing that would have enormous implications for the future. And I just like to talk to him about it, you know, get... Because he could do it. He could make that happen. And there, I don't know of anybody else who could do something like that. Well, one, of, one of the interesting uh, things that we found recently, um, I don't know if you remember when uh, Cernovich went on 60 Minutes. Yeah. <laughs> there was a little, a little minor controversy about that. And like in the course of that, I don't know who did it, but we discovered that we, that we, looked, at, we looked at 60 Minutes as Twitter followers, right? And there's some there's some tool that you can use to um, see who's what percent of everybody's Twitter followers is real, and I think Sarnovich's were like ninety percent, and and sixty minutes was like sixty percent. So <laughs> Sarnovich's platform on on um, Twitter alone is bigger than sixty minutes. <laughs> I mean, and then you, you you look at all these news sites and you look at all these mainstream journalists and you see that like they have all these large follower number accounts and uh, they're padding somehow they're padding a lot of these like I mean all these a lot of their followers just aren't even real, which is fraudulent because these these places sell yeah. advertising right 
And they're defrauding the advertisers by padding out their followership on social media. That's got to be one of the reasons why they're doing it. Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you another thing. Um, two things. Um, one of the things that we had noticed recently, um, a friend of mine had been going on um, about this for the longest time because he's always followed the Southern Poverty Law Center's website, right? And he looks at the uh, their Alexa rating, and it's got such a high Alexa rating, and then it's just like a total disparity, like, um, Daily Stormer has a high uh, rating, but like it gets a gazillion comments. Why are there no comments at um, the SPLC Hate Watch blog? I mean, it, it seems to be getting all this traffic, and, and the reason is, is because they were uh, spending like millions apparently on Google Ads. Uh, so every time you would search for like Family Research Council or something, a little ad for the SPLC would uh, pop up, and then that would count as its traffic. And um, a, lot, a lot of these institutions are just throwing millions out there to look bigger than they are. And uh, their influence isn't nearly as great as it is, uh, we found. That's really interesting. One thing about the Internet that is so encouraging is that I think that if, if the establishment had been coordinated and far-sighted enough, they never would have allowed this thing to happen. But they did allow it to happen. And now it's like an addiction because they can't live without it, and yet it's destroying them. I mean, it's oh, like yeah. being addicted to heroin. The, the existing establishment, the oligarchy, the, the oligarchical media, the banks, all the big companies, the political system, they can't shut this thing off. It'll kill them. Yet if they don't shut it off, we're going to use it to kill them. They can throw up roadblocks. That's, yeah. that's the way I see it. Yeah. Uh, they, can, they can ban one account or they can um, try to politically correct a platform and it'll just ruin it in another platform. We were talking about Reddit um, recently, and, I mean a few minutes ago. Mm-hmm. And uh, that same friend I was telling you about the SPLC, he's got very interested in um, the Reddit alternative. It's called Voad. And I've never really used it. I know people post my articles over there. Um, I've never really gotten into that, um, mainly because I got into Reddit and just everything was just censored and buried. And um, they started deleting Reddits and everything. And there was a huge community of us on Reddit, and then they just wiped us out. So, but I've heard that Voat um, or Voat or whatever you call it is a lot bigger than I thought it was. It was it's gaining like a a lot of traffic, I guess. I mean, there's just been tons of people who've been deplatformed out there and um, have migrated there and elsewhere. I mean, I don't know how long this is going to go on. With it seemed like uh, late last year that Twitter was about to ban everybody, uh, but they didn't. I think I think that's because they got so much criticism and so much pushback, and they got afraid. And um, I I I think they're afraid because it allows them to keep tabs on us too, for one thing. Well, I know Facebook is Facebook. I've been told is uh, an intelligence gathering um, <laughs> tool that they use to like find our networks and stuff. Oh yeah, and I knew that going in when I got my first yeah. Facebook account. It's like okay, they're going to use this against me, but that means that I'm going to have to work a little extra harder to make sure that the I benefit from this on 
net, right, on, on average over the long run more than they do. And I think that I have done that. And there have been times when I've just sort of, uh, when I have shut down Facebook things in the past uh, because I, I felt like I, I wasn't getting enough out of it and I was just giving information to the system and not getting back enough to justify being on there. But I've, I've been on Facebook steadily since 2011, but before that I went on and off a couple of times. Well, I use, um, the main, the main, uh, one I use is Twitter. Uh, although I want, I want to, um, use Periscope more and that's integrated into Twitter. So if I go to these events, I can, that's, that's how, um, for example, Cernovich got as big as he was. He was doing all these Periscope videos and I've seen a lot of people start to use that. And then it was incorporated in the Twitter itself and it's just become a part of the platform. Um, so streaming video is, and, you know, having your own following, um, you know, Cernovich was, I think he was actually in the White House press briefing room. He's done gotten that big. And um, at the rate everybody else is gaining followers, you know, within a year or two, I mean, you could just, people could just have huge platforms out there, which they could use to send out our material. I wonder when, they, I wonder how long it'll be until they just try to ban us outright. Right. Um, Right. I, I, yeah, I just don't think they can. One thing is, I think we've gotten too big for them to ban us outright. I think yeah. there are too many of us for them to ban. And to the extent that anybody in the establishment makes decisions based on facts, and that's kind of a shaky assumption to make because most of what they do is just premised on denying reality. But to the extent that there's somebody somewhere in some office who actually looks at facts and tries to factor these things in with political policy, I think they've noticed, and I think they've they've taken notice of the fact that there are too many of us to be banned at this point. And they're, they're basically going to have to figure out how to manage us. And that basically means that they're now moving into a phase where the strategy of the establishment is to manage its own decline. And that's a really nice place to be in. <laughs> yeah, um, man, we haven't really even uh, talked about the whole politics of the Trump administration of the last since January. Yeah, let's talk some about that. What do you think? What do you think uh, about where we're at? I know we're doing health care again, or that's wow. what's going on. Apparently. A friend of mine and I, well, a, a lot of friends and I have been discussing what happened to Trump. Was he a fraud? Well, no, I don't think he was a fraud. I think he was sincere because if he were just a fraud, he wouldn't have taken unpopular stands that created a situation where he had to fight a two-front war against the Democrats and his own party to get into the White House. He would have just run as a slightly less cucky Jeb Bush and counted on his wealth and personality and celebrity to get him the nomination and get him the presidency. If he weren't sincere about things like immigration and nationalism and trade and so forth, he wouldn't have mentioned those things at all. He wouldn't have gone against the Republican consensus. So I believe that he was sincere about that stuff. And so what happened? I think he just got into office. And I think that there's a, a chance that he's being blackmailed in some way. And I also just think that he is boxed in with a lot of people who don't share his vision and since he's basically a guy who's a problem solver they're presenting their problems to mm -hmm. him to solve and so he's doing 
Uh, what they're telling them, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And he might not even know what's going on. I mean, that's that's how this thing works. Uh, you you get the wrong advisors, and they're just going to you know move the stuff that they don't care about to the bottom of the stack, and they're going to say, oh, we've got a terrible thing going on in Syria, or this is very important in North Korea, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, so I I think maybe that's going on, uh, and he's just solving the problems that they're di- that they're giving to him. And I think the reason why this has basically happened is because we couldn't expect to save the country with just a chief, chief executive. He's got to have people around him who actually agree with him, and he's got to have people in Congress he can cooperate with. And he's really lonely there. Oh, that's definitely my take on it, too. Um, that, you know, he came there, and it was the whole Trump revolution ended up being um, – Bannon and maybe half a dozen people inside an administration that was stacked with two, three to four to one, all these other establishment types and conservative types that he defeated. And yeah. now they've one by one are, are muscling all the nationalists out. And this, all this, just this conservative bullshit um, is constantly in front of them. Like, you know, he's being told, I'm sure by the, the boomer generals yeah. <laughs> and, uh, all these people around him and his daughter. Oh, you got to, uh, you know, show that we're the leader of the free world by like striking a side. And, mm-hmm. and they're just pushing all this stuff on him. And he doesn't have the, um, I guess, I, don't, I really don't think he has the, the knowledge in the background to, you know, see past it. It's kind of disturbing. Um, these people are just putting all this stuff in front of him and he's going with it. Yeah, I agree. I, I really think that's what's happening. I I didn't think that he would be the solution, although in my heart of hearts, I hoped that what would happen is that he would get in and that our network would be strong enough that we could actually get a lot of people who believed in his vision, and maybe a little bit more, like our issues, right, into mm-hmm. positions in the administration in the federal bureaucracy, and that we could start building our own deep state, basically, that would actually help him move things forward. I was hoping that would happen. It just didn't happen. There is another group that's far bigger and far more networked, and they've been doing this a very, very long time, and they got their people in. Uh, Jared Kushner and all of his Orthodox Jewish friends, they managed to, uh, you know, Flood the administration. And, you know, it is interesting. Um, I know Jews are a problem, but there are different types of Jews, and if you actually poll them on their attitudes about things of interest to us, Orthodox Jews are far less inimical to white interests than the secular liberal leftist Jews. Uh, for instance, yeah. there was a, a, a poll that a friend of mine cited where 25% of Orthodox Jews said they believe that it's that that white people should have the right to discriminate in, you know, housing and things like that. Now, that's not a huge percentage, 25%, but it it takes on a, a different meaning when you compare that to how many white people think that it's okay to discriminate in that way. And it turns out that Orthodox Jews are far more on board with racial discrimination than white uh, 
than whites as a whole, right? <laughs> they they actually are more willing to think about our kinds of issues than your average white voter, and that's kind of a sobering fact. So even though we're getting a, a reach, uh, you know, there's there's this big Jewish network that's moved into power, and the forward has actually written about this. It's a new Jewish elite that's been rising under Trump, and they are orthodox and much more, you know, amenable to certain white nationalist kind of concerns than the previous Jewish elite. Now, I hate the idea that it all depends upon what Jews are running our country for. Yeah, us. yeah, I know. I saw saw that article uh, when I was in Kentucky. I remember I, I pulled over. Um, I was taking in um, the view in the Appalachian Mountains of one of those roadside parks where you can just look at you know, while we're up there in the Smoky Mountains. And uh, <laughs> like on Twitter, and somebody's tweeted the Ford article, and it's about like you know, a hundred days in, and a new Jewish elite arises under Trump, and it's all about the meaning of this election was that the Orthodox Jews have triumphed within the Jewish community over you know the more liberal, liberal, moderate. Uh, Jewish wing. So it's like, really? That's what it's all about? It's about, like, uh, changing of factions within yeah, Jewish leaders? basically. Yeah, it's sad but true. Yeah. I mean, but that's the meaning of history as far as yeah. they're concerned, and the trouble is is that we're along for the ride. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I, and you can see them, and you look at it, and um, I was reading the article, and, you know, Kushner has taken over, you know, Middle East policy, foreign policy, and he's put on the, all these, you know, aggressive Zionists like uh, David Friedman, I think, is one of them, in, in there. And so, and so the major change in that area is that we're more likely to go to war with Iran in Syria and and let. Um, I know Trump is going to Israel, and then there was, you know, the speech to the World Jewish Congress, and the whole month of May is Jewish American Heritage Month. <laughs> there's just there's just so many things, and you know. It's like we're going. We're, we're more likely to get in a war with Syria, for Bibi Netanyahu can send in settlers to the Golan Heights, which can be recognized. That's what they're pressuring Trump to do. Um, they want us to go take out Assad for we will recognize Israel's, you know, annexation of the Golan Heights. So <laughs> this is this. It's maddening. We had this huge nationalist populist revolution. Right. We're, we're sitting here and we're talking. We're arguing about you know corporate tax cuts. Um, tinkering with Obamacare and whether uh, Israel will get to annex the Golan Heights. So. Yeah, it's really sad. The thing that impresses me, though, about our community's response to this is that we are not all black-pilled and we're not all delusional. I mean, some of us are engaged in delusional 88D Mahjong you know, uh, strategy yeah. dis discussions <laughs> and that kind of stuff. And I just... I just think that's sad, but most of us aren't. Most of us, and most of us aren't depressed either. Most of us are oh, just I'm... energized, and it's like, okay, we knew this guy wasn't the solution. He was a vehicle. He has helped us in ways that are tremendous. We give him credit for that, uh, uh. but we're just going to keep ongoing. Uh, we're he's we're we're not going to let this stop us. We're going to find new vehicles. And the thing is, is that Trump is not the revolution. Trump is just the first manifestation in, in concrete political reality of the 
rising populist nationalist sentiments among oh, white Americans. And if he is not the champion that he said he was going to be, and that I have to say that brought tears to my cynical eyes when I was listening to that, uh, frankly, somebody else will come along who will be that champion. And so we have to get out there and we have to be his critics and we have to represent that rising populist nationalist tide and i well, think that's well, what we're doing yeah you got it well i mean I, I, that's the, you know i would not recommend people to get blackpilled over you know i'm not people accuse me oh you're blackpilling me on all this stuff and i'm like no i'm just being i'm not i'm not really like all is lost or hopeless or anything like that but i mean you, you look at where this was and i'm sure you were around for it um the whole you got to remember all this populist nationalist stuff started with <laughs> Glenn Beck's stupidity when they were ha- holding like the restoring honor <laughs> rally at the MLK monument in, uh, what was it? 2010, 2011. And it was tea party and all that stuff. And it's evolved in a more positive direction from there. I mean, we went from that to, um, Trump's campaign. So you got to wonder now that these people are kind of moving away from Trump and going in their own direction, where are they going now? <laughs> And then, and then you can just say, okay, look, we had this huge election, and the meaning of the election is that we weren't, um, we weren't focused enough on Jews, apparently. <laughs> right. I mean, even the daily, even even the Daily Stormer like dropped the ball on Jews, in that like the most Jewish critical people out there, with the, you know, who were warning about like Jared Kushner, <laughs> turned out to be right. Right. They're like, I could, I couldn't support Trump because of. You know, he's got a Jewish son-in-law, and um, Lord, we did not know how, how much of an impact he would have. But well, exactly. We they, they always punch above their weight. There's no question about that. And, of course, the fact is is that even though Trump does have the problems that he has, he's a lot better than Hillary Clinton. I still believe that. And he was certainly better at advancing our issues than any of the Republican field. Yeah. So... He just wasn't enough. He wasn't good enough. And that's, that, it's good for us to know this sooner rather than later. And to get back on the offense, we need to start shaping the discussion. We need to get back on this issue. How do we start shaping the, uh, the political debate? What do we do next? Well, we gotta, we gotta invest in our own networks and communities, like we've been saying. Yeah. <laughs> I know you've been saying it, you've been saying it for years that you have these, Rich white guys, these millionaires and billionaires, and they'll just go throw countless thousands of dollars at Ted Cruz or oh yeah or Trump, yeah. thinking they're going to have some kind of influence, and then it turns out, you know, sorry, next time, and it's like Charlie Brown, you know, <laughs> kicking yeah. the ball, and and they just threw gobs and gobs and gobs of money at these politicians, and it's just wasted. I mean, imagine, I mean, I'll give you a, a really good example is what happened at Berkeley. Mm-hmm. When Ann Coulter was out there and, you know, her speech got canceled and she said it's a, a huge blow for free speech. And then a couple of guys just went in there and held the ground and there was no violence at all. And they weren't funded. Imagine. I mean, yeah. Yeah. And that. Yeah. Right. <laughs> throw, throw something like 60 million dollars at those guys a year and they just chickened out and like tucked tail and went home. Imagine if we, if we had just a fraction of that money. Exactly. Uh, what we could do. And that's what people need to do. Is invest in, you know, people who are serious and who are going to stay the course and who aren't just faking it. I completely agree. Years ago, I knew guys who were 
bona fide national socialists who would give more money to Ron Paul than they ever would have considered giving to the movement. And I just think that has to end. We're just, it's, it's so funny, it's so odd, this uh, recent Daily Stormer uh, lawsuit thing uh, bothers oh, me. Yeah. I mean, I was ama- I'm amazed that, that more than $80,000 the last time I looked has been raised for that. But it just sort of saddens me that I think this is the first time the Daily Stormer has ever raised $80,000 for anything. And it's $80,000 that's going to go in the, into the pockets of lawyers in what is, I think, a hopeless lawsuit. Where were, where was that $80,000 in the past when Andrew Anglin needed money for, to live on, right? Hire other writers. You know, yeah, or other writers, man. exactly. It's just so sad. I mean, our priorities are, are messy. You know, where we've got messed up priorities. There's just something silly about our, our movement when, when you see these sorts of things happening. It's like, where was all this money when, when it was really, really needed, uh, right? Where will it be again when it's really, really needed? Do we really want to have a culture where the SPLC knows they can basically suck all the spare change out of our movement every six months by filing a nuisance lawsuits? Falsehood. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's sad. But it's where we are now, but we're growing. And I think we're, you know, there are more of us than ever. The average age is younger. Okay. Super smart and well put together people, less marginal than <laughs> with each passing day. That's another thing that's amazing yeah. to me. Even the, uh, even the anti-fascists will joke with me about that on Twitter. Mm-hmm. I got some of them that follow me and they're like, you know, I kind of yearn for the days of, uh, of Bill White. <laughs> oh yeah, out. remember Bill White? Yeah, remember that guy. <laughs> it just goes to sh- just goes to show you how far we've we've came in the oh, last oh yeah seventy yeah that that is really something. Or, 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 or do, do we even, no one even talks about Alex Linder even more? Uh, yeah, I guess he's but, still out there. I mean, <laughs> I hadn't even like thought of I hadn't even thought of Linder in gosh years. Um, <laughs> It just goes to show you how, how much the center of gravity has changed. Yeah, yeah. So, I prefer people to go out there. Um, and, you know, I, I'm meeting all these people. We're doing all these real-world events now. Mm-hmm. And I met a bunch of people at Spencer's speech and people going to Kentucky and all kinds of them coming into New Orleans. And I'm going to meet Baked Alaska and Base Stickman <laughs> this weekend. I think that's great. One thing that I'd like to end on, and we're getting close to an hour, so this should be the last topic, is this. Let me tell you a little story. Uh, at the end of February, beginning of March, I think it was, uh, the last day of February, first day of March, Milo noticed, linked something on February 28th that, that appeared on Countercurrents. And that day we had 50,000 people come and read that particular piece. And the following day, like 47,000 more came. I was totally in awe of how much traffic this could, this guy could drive, even in his disgrace, right? With a simple nod on Facebook. That just oh, this, blew me away. I haven't even seen Milo since he's been off Twitter. I'm not really on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. He's but, still um, not that much of an audience there. Wow. Oh, yeah. Tremendous. Uh, and I guess the, the, the thing that I, I just want to talk about is we're so much stronger if we can cooperate with one another. And, 
that means that we've got to stop, you know, when, when we have a tendency to attack one another or counter signal as the term is, we got to bite our tongues and we got to figure out ways of getting around that, uh, that, that tendency because my God, there's, there's so much that we can do if we can coordinate better, but to coordinate better, we got to at least talk to each other. We don't even have to like each other, but we should at least be able to talk with one another. And I was very encouraged when I saw the level of unity that was uh, uh, present at, at Pikeville. That was an interesting experience. The, the people who came together to help uh, get Spencer's thing happening at Auburn and so forth. Oh. I think this is really positive. Uh, and I'd like to see more of that. You're meeting with Baked Alaska and Baked Based Stickman. That's this, cool. This yeah, yeah, that's that's. I did not expect. I did not expect that was uh, going to happen. Yeah. And that just materialized out of nowhere. And um, one of the and this is there's a common uh, thread here, and it's the reaction against the the antifas. <laughs> just right. been going at it with them for days and weeks now, mm-hmm. ever since um. I don't know, mid-March, April, mm-hmm. and uh, the war against this, a war going on against the Antifas where we're just straight up using all these, we, we got all these big platforms now and we're all using them to, um, you know, here, here, I mean, you want to unify people, um, a common enemy and threat and a villain uh, um, is, is a good way to do it. And, you know, the Antifas have cast themselves in that role. And, now, now, now you're seeing all, on Twitter all these anti-communist all these groups. They call themselves like anti-communist New Orleans, anti-communist Birmingham, anti-communist DC. <laughs> they're all, they're all, you know, this, you know, they call themselves anti-fascist. So this, this uh, anti-communist, anti-anarchist reaction that's coming against them. And well, one of the most communists, pop- yeah, they're definitely yeah. communists. One of the most positive things is that, you know, you're starting to see us assemble the physical force to appear in security in public places and universities and the, the threat of Antifa's violence is <laughs> sharply declining. And you might, and you might soon see like it go into reverse where in a lot of these places like Nashville being a, a recent example or Austin, uh, there'll be so much more organized, militant, anti-communist activity <laughs> that the antifas will be the ones who will be afraid to come out. And we can start holding uh, public meetings and bringing people in like we normally should. And that's that's something you know we've just got so accustomed to, mm-hmm. hiding in the shadows and caravanning to hotels because of these people and their violence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a reaction going on against that. And that's why you're seeing all these people like, I mean, I cannot imagine, like, a year or two ago, if you told me that I would be going to, like, an NSM event uh, right. with, with Matt Hanbach and all these people and Daily Stormer and God knows who else, um, I wouldn't have, you know, I was like, yeah, you're kidding me. And uh, now, you know, I, I met some of these people and they just, you know, hate communists. And I'm like, I was when I was there, it was just, it was me and about 10 other people versus 200 of these screaming communists. And they were screaming, punch a Nazi, right? Mm-hmm. And then, <laughs> so then here, comes, then here they come up with all these guns. It's like a hundred of them marching in order. And you ought to just seen the, the, the complete look of demoralization on their face. No, that must have been a beautiful sight. 
Oh, I was never that glad in my entire life to see like, like thank God the NSM or whoever, whoever the hell these people are here, you know? Right. Because these people want to kill me and these people don't. So like I know who's, I'm not, I know who I'm going to counter signal from now on. Right. Yeah, I do think that whenever a group tends to fall out amongst uh, itself, that you've got to bring it back into harmony by finding an external enemy. I mean, that's just human cussedness, right? Yeah. Uh, especially when you're dealing with very contrarian and aggressive personalities to begin with. If they don't have something that they can work against in common, they will start fighting amongst themselves. And also, of course, the fact that so much of the movement is online and people behave worse, honestly, online than they do face-to-face. Mm-hmm. I think that you know having face-to-face gatherings really does help, too. Yeah, yeah, that, that, we had had a lot of falling outs recently. We became less active, uh, during the whole Trump thing, less active in the real world, more active, uh, online, and there was a lot of feuds started in that period, but there, because of the Antifas, a lot of that's being set aside now. And so, like, it'll be interesting. David Duke will be there in New Orleans. Base Stickman, Black Rebel. <laughs> The League of the South, uh, the Proud Boys. <laughs> it's gonna be, this is, I've never been to an event like this. Um, uh, it's going to be something else. That's really exciting. So maybe we should talk next week and you can uh, debrief us on all that. That would be, that'd be super okay, interesting. Okay. Uh, that's assuming like we don't run into like, uh, the most violent city in America and get shot by gangs or something, uh, but we'll see. <laughs> Barring yeah. that, uh, yeah. it'll be good to talk next week. Yeah, this. yeah. Well, well, Hunter, Brad, uh, it's been great talking. It's it's good to catch yeah, up on this. I and I think that uh, we should definitely continue this in the future. And I've I've gotten some food for thought here. I'm definitely going to start uh, clicking follow, follow, follow more people on Twitter. I think that's going oh, to yeah. help when me. They follow, when they follow you, follow them back. Yeah. And then at the end of the month, just the ones that unfollow you, get rid of them and then go through and weed out like the social media marker marketers and obvious fakes and then mm-hmm. tweet perfectly correct stuff and like it'll edit and it'll grow on its own. Yeah, I think that's good. I have not been tending my Twitter garden properly. That's, that's for sure. I do well, do yeah. that with uh, Facebook. You know, I'm always going through my feed and like eliminating people who are just like sending me pictures of their lunch and stuff like that. <laughs> so I can see the stuff that really matters. And uh, right. I think Twitter is definitely an area to uh, improve my, my game in, though. Okay, well, it was nice talking to you. And uh, if, you know, we don't all get hit shot by gang members. <laughs> yeah, school. yeah. I mean, Excellent. the irony would be you go to New Orleans and, you know, you there's no anti-fall violence, but you're just victims of random, uh, random yeah. TNB. That would be ironic. Let's hope that doesn't happen. And good luck down there. I think this is really, really important. I just listened to the Daily Showa's uh, um, uh, podcast about New Orleans, and it's really outrageous, the Taliban-type stuff that these people are, are proposing to do down there. It's really got to be stopped. You know, I've also heard that there are more uh, events in the works around issues like that, too, which will be coming up in the next month um, beyond New Orleans, so. Keep an eye out on that. Uh-huh. Yeah, definitely. That is that is very important. This this gets people viscerally to to learn that these people chiseled out the names of people who died in a battle. That's viscerally 
terrifying. It's disgusting. It's Taliban tactics. We've got to stop that. That's just wrong. That's wrong on all kinds of levels that even normies, even boomers can understand, I think. Okay. Well, it's nice talking to you, and see you next time. All right. Take care. Thanks. All right. See you, man.